1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. Give ear to the word of God. Paul writes, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, in case you haven't been with us the whole time, uh, we're going through 1 Timothy. It's one of the pastoral epistles. And what Paul does here in these epistles, explicitly in this one, is he gives Timothy and us instructions on how things are to be ordered in the church, which he calls the household of God in verse 15, which is the church of the living God, and he calls it a pillar and buttress of the truth. Here in our chapter, Paul spends most of his time teaching us the qualifications, the biblical qualifications, which are the the real qualifications for elder or overseer and deacon. Uh, Last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at at the first part of our passage in verses 8 through 10, and we saw there that uh, in, in a lot of ways, the qualifications for elder and deacon are essentially the same. Maybe as you're reading through it, you're thinking, why didn't you just say this at the beginning of the chapter and say, elders and deacons both, it's this. But Paul saw to it, and the Holy Spirit inspired the text in such a way that uh, we needed to hear it twice in some ways. We needed to have it emphasized for us that deacons have the same qualifications in many ways as as elders. We saw last week that when Paul says, likewise, deacons, that little word likewise should indicate to us that, that the work of a, of a deacon, the same as the work of an elder, is a spiritual work. It's a practical work. In some ways, it's a lot more practical than that of an elder. You know, I often sort of semi-jokingly say that I have no practical skills. I'm not a handy person. You know, learning Greek and Hebrew and and whatnot doesn't help when somebody's fence needs to be fixed, that kind of a thing. That's that's not my strong suit, If you as you know. Uh, But just because the deacon's work is practical in, in many ways, caring for the sick, caring for the poor, those who are in need, does not mean that that task is not a spiritual work just the same as that of the elders. And so the men whom the church is to set apart and ordain for that work must also be men who are sanctified and equipped by the Holy Spirit for that work. They have to be men like Stephen was in the book of Acts, who was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. They must be Spirit-filled men, those who are sanctified again and equipped by God's Spirit for that, that work. We're going to see this morning from our text, uh, the, the rest of the passage, what Paul has to say about the importance of a deacon's marriage and his family life. In the same way that Paul talked about the overseers or elders, that they had to be the husband of one wife or a one-woman man, even so the deacons also have to be what? The husbands of one wife, or it's, it's in the plural here in verse 12, it's one-woman men. He uses the plural. They have to be the same as an elder in that, in that way. Just as an elder, in verse 4, Paul says, must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive in the same way the deacon. Paul says deacons must what? Be managing their children and their own households well, verse 
12. So same, same kind of qualification, same emphasis on marriage and family life. Uh, also, there is the pressing question in our day. It's kind of a hot-button topic, as you might know. The question of whether or not women can serve as deacons in the church. This is a question that has taken hold even in many uh, ostensibly Reformed and Presbyterian churches. Some of them have taken to ordaining women to this office, or at least bringing the question up in many ways and seeking to make that a reality. Uh, so we're going we're to do this morning, Lord willing, is look at that question first, kind of settle that question from our text, and then we'll look briefly at what Paul has to say here in our text uh, about the family life and marriage life of, of a deacon. Let's look at the first thing, uh, the question of female deacons. If you've been here during the study through the end of, of this chapter, uh, back in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, you might remember that uh, Paul had some rather strong words to say about about uh, at least for our modern ears anyway, about women in the church regarding whether or not they should be teaching or exercising authority over men in the church. This is one of those passages that in many ways, among some, is a very unpopular and even offensive text, but it's the Word of God, and we do know, know, we do not do good to disregard it or to try to quibble with it. Paul, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 15, he writes this. He says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. He's talking about the church. He says, rather, she is to remain quiet, and he gives us a reason for that. This isn't Paul just giving us his opinion. He says, for the reason, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, it's not an accident that the very next thing Paul goes into is what? The qualifications for the office of elder and deacon. You know, we we often uh, sometimes, you know, mistakenly see those chapter divisions in your Bibles and as if Paul wrote one, you know, chapter two, new subject, chapter three, it's just a letter. You would read the whole thing, and the next thing that followed from that, that passage was the qualifications, or is the qualifications for elder and deacon. And so you have to think that Paul, at the very minimum, the bare minimum, he had the offices in the church in mind when he said those things in chapter 2. Now, many in our day, even in the church, find this language to be offensive. Now, we're not going to rehash the sermon that we preached a, a month or two ago on that passage, uh, what we already said, but I think it wouldn't be a bad thing for us to remind ourselves of a couple simple things from that text. And the first thing is that we have to keep in mind and be reminded of is that Paul grounds that instruction not in the cultural norms of his day, as we are often tempted to say. You know, many, many, what they do to get around these things, they say, well, Paul was just using the cultural ideas of his day, and this is what they held. They were backwards, first century hicks, and now we know better. That's not what he says. What does Paul ground this instruction in? The order of God in creation. Before there was such a thing as culture at all. When he first made Adam and Eve, the order of God in creation, the original created order that God had ordained. He says in the very beginning of creation, what does he say? That Adam was formed first and then Eve. He gives us the reason right in the text. He also grounds those instructions 
in the events of the fall in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. He reminds us, he says, Adam, verse 14, Adam was not deceived. This is back in chapter 2. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So however we understand that, it may be difficult to understand, but in some way, Eve being deceived by the serpent is part of the reason and why her and her posterity, so to speak, are forbidden from teaching or having authority over men in the church. In, in a sense, it would be kind of like trying to follow in her footsteps when she misstepped. It would be kind of trying to do a do-over of what she did, which was part of why the fall happened. She overstepped her bounds in the garden, and so to try to put women forward in the church as elders and deacons, especially as pastors and elders, would be to follow in those footsteps, which she shouldn't have done in the beginning. So Paul's instructions in our text and throughout this letter and elsewhere are not grounded in cultural norms of his day or any other day. You know, if you think about that argument, what is it really saying? If you're to say that Paul's argument is grounded in the cultural norms, you're saying that what Paul's instructions really boil down to is be conformed to the world. This is how the world thinks, so you have, as the church, we have to copycat the world to not offend them. Do you see Paul doing that anywhere in his writings? Do you see anything in Scripture that tells you? In fact, Paul says the exact opposite. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, what does he say? Don't be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. In other words, you, you and I, on our own, we naturally think the way the world does already. If you want to be conformed to the world, what do you have to do? Nothing. But when your mind's renewed by the word of God in this and all kinds of different things, even as that, that text in Joshua chapter 5 we looked at, Joshua needed to be have his mind renewed. I know you're thinking this. Nope, you're not in charge. I am. All these kinds of things the Bible does and teaches us to think and have our minds renewed. As in everything else in our lives, we have to try, we really have to try not to be, or, or, or not try, rather. We shouldn't try to be wiser than God. When you see the scripture saying something clearly, and you know what it means, we shouldn't try to find ways around it. We should not try to set aside or annul the, the clear teaching of God's word on any subject. You know, we, we have to trust the wisdom of God over the wisdom of the world. Even if you're not sure why the Word of God says something, we have to trust that God has His reasons for it. You can seek to understand those things. If you're not sure why God put something in His Word, try to understand it. Seek after understanding, but don't set it aside because you don't understand it. Or if you don't know the reasons why God said something. Even as a parent, very often, you know, what do you hear at a certain age when you tell your children to do something or not do something? What's the magic word you hear over and over again? Why? And what's, and what's the right answer sometimes, kids? Because I said so. That doesn't mean... No, you're, we parents are fallible, but it doesn't mean that they don't have a reason, does it? It doesn't mean that we're flipping coins in the back bedroom. Okay, what are we going to tell them to do or not do today? We might have a reason, but we might, we might not have time to tell you why. Paul says in our text... Uh, he says, their wives, verse 11, their wives, whose wives? The deacons' wives. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded in all things. Now, some, some have said that this, 
this verse being in the text somehow implies that women can and should be deacons. And what they what they say is, remember what I said last week if you were here, that Paul says, likewise, deacons, uh, back in verse 8. And so he's comparing deacons in their qualifications to the elders. Well, here he uses that word again. He says, likewise, and the word for wives here is is it's kind of the the generic word it very often is the word for woman and the word for wife are the same word and the only way you know which way to take the word is it woman or is it wife also is by the context and so what some are saying here they say well what he's really saying is women likewise do this or must be these things and so as if Paul is somehow opening the door for women to be to be deacons here but one of the things in the text that, that argues against that very thing is what does he say about the wives? Uh, it, it, can, it can just be taken as women, but he says in, verse, uh, in the verse following that, that, that the deacon must be the husband of one wife. It's hard to be a wife to be a wife of a wife, to be, to be a deacon. He says in the very next verse in verse 12, he says, uh, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. So he's not changing the subject. He's still talking about deacons throughout the passage. The word for deacons there is also masculine in nature. It's a masculine word in, in Greek and Hebrew. Very often there are, I should say, gender of, of the terms of certain words, and this is in the masculine. And so the fact that he adds that they must be the husband of one wife shows that the previous verse, verse 11, he was still referring to the wives of deacons and not to some new qualification or new office. He's not talking about deaconesses or female Deacons here. Now, here's the question. Why does Paul bring up the character, the godliness of the wives of deacons? Why would that be important? Why would that make sense to bring it up? Did he bring that same thing up with the elders in the previous passage? He didn't. He didn't bring it up at all. That's another reason why some say, well, maybe this is a different, a different ball of wax here. I think the reason for that is, is obvious if you think about it. Uh, some commentators, including John Calvin and William Plummer, point out that it was and continues to be the case that because the deacons are so often involved in mercy ministry and caring for the poor, the sick, and others in need, that the wives of the deacons would necessarily be involved in helping them with it. I think that makes perfect sense. Whereas the, the work of the elders one of teaching and authority would be necessarily something that their wives would not be directly involved in. I think that's the explanation for why it's brought up in the one and not brought up in the other. In the case of elders and overseers, again, that's a teaching and authoritative position. And so serving or assisting them alongside them would not really be possible in the first place because Paul, what he said in the previous passage in chapter 2, which we just looked at. And so when we consider a man for the office of deacon and for the ministry of service that's involved in that, the word of God instructs us to consider the character of his wife if he's married. The fruit of the spirit must be evident in her life as well. They, the wife, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things in order to be entrusted to serve in assisting their husbands in that important ministry. Now, I, I don't believe, as I've already said, that I don't believe that the scripture teaches that we should have female deacons or deaconesses, uh, but some do point to Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul says in the ESV, it puts it this way, 
He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, and the ESV puts it this way, a servant of the church at Sancre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a worthy, in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way uh, she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember the word deacon can be translated as what? It's there in verse 1. Just plain, in a general way, servant. There's not a different word for deacon than there is for servant. And so just like the word for woman and wife are the same word in the Greek, in the same way deacon and servant, because they mean the same thing. A deacon is a servant. Remember in Acts 6, uh, the apostle said, it's not right for us to give up the preaching of, of the word of God to serve tables. It's it's a serving kind of kind of role. And so the word deacon can be rendered more simply as servant, uh, and both men and women in the church and children in the church, frankly, uh, should strive to be known as servants of the church, even as Phoebe was. And we should hold in high esteem anybody who serves in the church, whether they occupy an office in the church or not. We saw last week, even Paul himself was not ashamed to call himself by that same word, servant, diakonos, in 1 Corinthians 4.1. Paul even referred to himself in Romans 1.1, as we saw last time, as a slave of Christ. Our translation, the ESV, puts it as servant, but it's really the word for slave or bond servant. That's what Paul saw himself as and wasn't ashamed to call himself. But Paul there wasn't calling himself a deacon. Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That wasn't his his office. He did not hold the office of, of deacon. And so this, like in all things, we shouldn't try to be wiser than God. We shouldn't try to go further than the word of God prescribes and ordains. And we should be very careful not to try to be the kind of Christians who always seem to be kind of looking for or devising loopholes in the word of God. There are no loopholes in God's word. You know, at times as, as believers, I think maybe you can identify with this at times in your life, we, we kind of have this temptation to, you know, let's say here's the line. You know, God draws the line. Here's where it is. Instead of staying back away from the line, we kind of, how close can we get without crossing? How, how, how far can we go without quite tripping over the line? That's not how we should act at all. In anything, the scripture says, we should be careful to try to obey God and not get as close as we can uh, to crossing over those lines. Let us look to conform ourselves as closely as we can to what the Scripture teaches in all things, for that's the way of prospering in the work of the Lord that he's given us to do. That's the way that God has promised to bless. That's especially the case when it comes to how we order things in the church, which is the household of God. You know, it, we, we very often, I think, are tempted to, to find new ways to do things that we think make sense to us rather than seeing what God's word says, and trusting that he knows what he's doing and he has reasons for what he has said. You know, just, just as in the book of Joshua, I didn't pick these things together for a reason, they just kind of dovetailed together. Um, what does he tell Joshua in chapter 1? Uh, he Over and over again, be strong and courageous for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go, right? But he tells him, this word of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall med- be careful to meditate upon it day and night. Why? that you may be careful to do according to everything I have commanded you, for then you will prosper and then you will find success. In other words, if you want to accomplish what I'm sending you out to do, you do things my way, not your way. 
And so what do you have to do as a Christian? We have to meditate on God's way. What does he say? How has God told us to do things in our homes, in our marriages, our families, in the church, in society, frankly, in all these things? God has has not been silent. How are we to worship God? You know, the Bible has a lot to say about that. He doesn't just say, well, worship me however you want. A lot of bad things happened in the Old Testament when people worshipped however they felt like doing, didn't it? God, God cares about his worship. He cares about how we live. He cares about his church. And he's given us very good instructions on all these things. And so let us try as much as we can. That's our goal, to order things according to the word of God in all these things. Well, let's look at the deacon's marriage and family life briefly, just as Paul, when he instructed us about the qualifications of elders and overseers, even so the same way when he instructs us about the qualifications of deacons, he places a very great importance on the deacon's marriage and family life, just as he did with the elders and overseers, and that's not without reason. Look at verse 12. He says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households, well, so just as we saw before, if a man wants to serve as an elder or overseer, he must prove himself faithful in his marriage. Even so, the same must be true of a man who would serve as a deacon. Uh, frankly, this shouldn't be thought of as, a, as too high a bar to set. It shouldn't be that much to ask. It shouldn't be a difficult standard to maintain. It's kind of the bare minimum, right? This doesn't mean that a deacon or elder has to be married, Paul was not married. Many have not been. It doesn't require, he's not requiring marriage, uh, but it's simply the case that most men in the church will be married or will have been married at some point. It's just the way life goes. Most of us end up being married. Uh, and so at Paul, that being the case, Paul points it out. And Paul says, well, if they're going to be married, here's how their marriage should be. Here's how it should look. If a man is married, he must be known as someone who is faithful to his wife if he's going to be considered to serve as a deacon. If he's unfaithful to his wife, how can he be trusted to faithfully serve in the church, which is the bride of Christ? If you can't keep your marriage vows, how are you going to keep your vows to serve in the church? Not only that, but Paul also teaches that a man who would serve as a deacon must manage or rule, King James puts it as rule, his children and his own household well. So a man's marriage and family, in many ways, is always the proving ground for serving in the church and other things as well. Now, all these things, as with all those things that we have been looking at regarding those qualifications of elder and deacon, it has to be borne in mind, and I think it bears repeating, that all of these qualifications are things that every single Christian should aspire to in your life. None of us can say, well, pastor, you know, I'm, I'm a church member, I've gone that far, but I, you know, I'm never going to be a deacon. I'm never going to be an elder, so what does this passage have to do with me? I can just kind of skate by. That's not what it implies at all. All these things are, are something that should be the aspiration and goal of every sincere Christian. None of these things are optional for those who confess the name of Christ. All these things are God's will for every believer, but they are an absolute must for those who would serve as officers in Christ's church. Well, Paul, as the scripture often does, Paul here amends a promise of blessing for those who serve well as deacons in God's church. Look at verse 13. He says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence or boldness 
in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You know, very often the scripture, thankfully, because God is good, uh, he knows how, how we're wired because he wired us, he gives us encouragements in the tasks he's given us to do. Remember uh, in, in the Ten Commandments, Paul even mentions in Ephesians 6, and it's the first commandment with a blessing. The fifth commandment, what does it say? Shall all the kids memorize this? Honor your father and your mother. Now he could have just stopped right there, right? And God doesn't have to give us enticements to obey. He doesn't have to encourage us with the promise of reward, but he often does, just as we do with our own children and grandchildren. He says, honor your father and mother. And then he says what? That, that, you, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you, that you may live long in the land. He's promising blessing upon the life of those who honor father and mother. Well, in the same way Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What, a, what an encouragement that should be to anybody who would serve in the church at all, and especially those who would serve as deacons. The work of deacon is not an easy work, but it's a good work. It's not an easy work, but it's a rewarding work. God works in you. He, he works on you and in you as he's working through you, as you serve him in the church. You'll find that you obtain, if you serve as a deacon, you'll obtain a good standing, he says, for yourself as a faithful deacon. A faithful deacon in the church will be held in high esteem by those who love the Lord in sincerity and truth. You know, the world isn't going to notice that. The world thinks you're weird for coming to church in the first place, much less serving in the church. There's lots of things. You should be home watching football or doing something else rather than wasting your time here with a bunch of weirdos uh, singing songs and pray, praying and whatnot, listening to somebody drone on up front. The world doesn't notice, but God's people do. And God does. And that should be the thing that matters most. What a blessing it is to be regarded by the Lord's beloved and His church in such a way, and great confidence or boldness in the faith. You think about when you serve the Lord that way and see God's blessing upon the works of your hands in the church, I think it has an effect, I think that's what Paul is saying, of further emboldening you to serve the Lord in greater ways. I think it emboldens you in your witness for Christ. You know, we often think of deacon as such a, a practical ministry, but think about Acts chapter 6 and 7. De- you know, the deacons were to serve tables, so to speak, and yet look at Acts chapter 7 and the great speech that Stephen gives. I, that's better than any sermon I'll ever give. He gave the entire history of Israel and showed how it pointed to Christ and even their rejection of him. And they stoned him for it, but God used even his martyrdom to bring about the salvation of the Apostle Paul. Great boldness or confidence as a result of serving God in his church as a deacon. Who among us wouldn't want that? You want, you want boldness in the faith? Serve God in the church. Put yourself out there in some way to serve his people. Well, if you're a believer in Christ and you're married, you have to, one of these things about these texts is it's always good to look yourself in the mirror by these texts, these passages, and, and examine yourself. Are you faithful to your husband or wife? Are you managing your own household well? Even if you might never serve as an officer in the church, we should be seeking to glorify God in our marriage and in our family. That should be the goal, to glorify Christ in all these things. Now, let's say you take a long look in the mirror of these things, and like it often seems to, to be the case for myself and probably most of you, I think, as well, is if you really look at your life, you really look at the text and take it to heart, you might say to yourself, I'm, 
I'm seeing, Pastor, a hundred different ways where I'm falling short in this. Probably, if you're anything like me, and in some ways I hope you're not, you probably see more on the bad side than the good side. You're saying, I'm seeing lots of ways where I'm falling short. I'm not seeing a whole bunch of ways where I where I do have done what is right. Well, what do you do as a Christian if that's the case? What do you always do? You take it to God in prayer. Confess your sins and shortcomings to God. You seek His mercy and forgiveness and cleansing grace. You ask God to forgive you and to cleanse you from your sins and shortcomings, to change you, to make you more and more live the way He wants you to do. Now, if you ever read Martin Luther's 95 Theses, these were the things that were... We talk about these uh, 95 Theses, this document that he nailed to the church door at Wittenberg as kind of the, the spark that lit the flame of the, Re- of, the, of the Reformation. Well, the very first one of those 95 points of argument was that the entirety of the Christian life is one of repentance. It's not the most revolutionary thought in the world, but we don't often think about it. That when He said, when, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, remember, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, he said that the Lord Jesus was teaching us there was that your entire life as a Christian is one of repentance. That in this life, as a Christian, uh, you will not reach perfection in this life. That's for heaven. In this life, you and I will always be finding, God will always be revealing our shortcomings and sins to us, thankfully a little bit at a time, that we might see them, grieve over them, and repent of them, and, and seek His grace in doing so. You'll always be finding things in your thoughts, words, and actions to repent of and to seek after God's grace and the work of His Holy Spirit that we might grow in grace and walk more and more in newness of life. Now, if you look at these things, these qualifications, these moral and ethical qualifications for office, and you find that maybe you're outside of Christ, maybe you're still in your sins and you're not yet in Christ by faith, what do you do then? You know, God's law, His commandments are like a mirror. They show us our sins. The Bible says, by the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. What do you do if you see that? You see your sin, but you know you're outside of Christ. What do you do? You repent of your sin. You confess them to God. You turn to Jesus Christ by faith for the salvation from your sins. It's in Christ alone you'll find justification in life. It's in Jesus alone you'll find the forgiveness of your sins for all your many sins and transgressions. In Jesus Christ alone, you'll also find sanctification and newness of life. You know, God, when you come to Jesus Christ by faith for salvation, God doesn't just give you eternal life. He gives you abundant life, and he changes your life. Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian, great Presbyterian theologian of years past, writes in his terrific little book called The Way of Life. He says, all the inward excellence of the Christian and the fruits of the Spirit are the consequences and not the causes of his reconciliation and acceptance with God. That goes entirely backwards to the way that we normally think. We think, I'll clean my life up, and then God will accept me. And he says, no. You come to Christ, you be reconciled to God, and guess what happens? God not only forgives you, but he sanctifies you. He changes your life by his grace. Those things are the consequences of you being reconciled to God and not the causes of them. We sang uh, that hymn earlier in the service, Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy. I hope hope as you sing these songs, you think about what we're singing and hear the the gospel being sung to you as you sing it. But in in three of those verses in that song, I won't sing it, uh, he says, Come ye thirsty, come and welcome, God's free bounty glorify. 
True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. That's part of the bounty of God's grace is that he uh, gives you belief and repentance. If you trust in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, where did it come from? God's grace gave it to you. Even the faith, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Even your repentance is worked in you by God. Only God can grant repentance. That The song goes on to say, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. And then he says, hymn writer says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're, till you're better, you will never come at all. God doesn't wait for you to clean yourself up first. He cleans you up. He cleanses you by the blood of His Son. Come to Christ by faith, and He will make you clean by His mercy and grace. Isaiah one eighteen says this. God says through His prophet, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be what? White as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Never forget Jesus came and died on the cross to save sinners. His blood alone is that which can wash the sinner clean from your guilty stains. Turn to him if you haven't already done so and and live. Let's, Let's pray.